Chinese investors, just in a more general sense, I think have a better idea of what it means to go from a frontier market to one that is much more mature from a digital and economic perspective than the average U.S. venture capitalist, because they generally have seen it themselves. That's Stephen Deng, a founding partner of DFS Lab, an early-stage fintech investor and accelerator focused on Africa, who splits his time between Silicon Valley and Shanghai. I think a lot of the Chinese investors have seen their own, not just the country as a whole, but some of them who've come from more rural or lower tier cities, they've seen those cities go through that transformation. So that dramatic change, I think, brings a sense of optimism and a sense of the ability to overcome a lot of what I think are mental blocks for investors, maybe in the West, such as you know poor infrastructure, poor governance, the slow but steady rise of communications. A few episodes ago, episode three of season two, we talked about emerging markets and the global south, and specifically the opportunity for African startups to expand to, learn from, and connect with markets outside of the continent that are more similar to their own. In this episode, we speak to Chinese investors about their experiences in a market that went through such a rapid development and some of the uniquely Chinese business models that may have merits in Africa. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. As you may have heard us talk about in the past, our name, The Flip, comes from our endeavor to flip the script, to question the applicability of Silicon Valley-style entrepreneurship and thought leadership in Africa. Though that's not unilateral, while there are certainly case studies worth exploring from the West, so too are there case studies worth exploring from China, in particular given the comparable set of market conditions, as Stephen just alluded to in the opener. The thing about certain Chinese tech companies, as we'll explore in this episode, is that they found success by acknowledging that China is different from elsewhere in the world and that consumers in rural China are different than consumers in top-tier cities like Shanghai or Beijing, and they built accordingly. And as Chinese businesses and investors have increasingly taken an interest in African markets, let's explore the impact on and opportunity for the entrepreneurship ecosystem in particular. Here's Stephen again. I think China has seen a leapfrog that the West will probably not see, which is the leapfrog of distribution. As we've talked about before, and Season 1, Episode 4 was dedicated to this topic entirely, distribution is a critical consideration on the continent. And here, in particular, is where China's development, given a lack of infrastructure at the onset of the internet and smartphone era, has led to a different set of outcomes than what we see in the U.S. and Europe. In the West, we've had a development of distribution, both digital and physical, that you know has happened over the last, I would say, 25 years, and essentially has matured. And the innovation within that space is really kind of pushing against a hard edge of wages and kind of what is possible physically. The Chinese ecosystem kind of went through this more recent leapfrog of what it means when you dramatically apply technology to physical distribution and then what it means when everyone from a digital distribution point is going through just smartphones. This, in particular, has manifested itself in smartphone ubiquity and e-commerce ubiquity, even in lower-tier cities and rural areas across the country. And so the models that came out of that, which skipped PC, which skipped kind of using the truck-based third-party only two-day delivery in favor of less than 24-hour delivery that's pure mobile first, I think investors have a different mentality of how they apply 
things that don't require some of the old pieces of infrastructure like landlines and PCs. This has implications for how a leading startup like Pinduoduo, a social commerce company targeting mass market consumers in rural and peri-urban areas, thinks about distribution. When I talk to someone like Pinduoduo, the question that I was asking is, you know, why don't you use agents? Why aren't you using essentially the Copia model in rural areas? And their answer was, if someone has a smartphone, they have leapfrogged that model. They think of the agent-based model that actually Alibaba is still using as part of the old age. And then they think of direct-to-consumer as the only way forward when people have access to smartphones. These are the kinds of lessons from China in particular that may be applicable given the comparable dynamics on the continent. What does it mean when you start with a community that has never really been using landline internet or PCs, and they've only been introduced to simple smartphones, so kind of low-end smartphones? And how do you build products, especially from a UX perspective, that is intuitive and also very pleasing for that population? There are tons of lessons there that I think can be gathered and probably transported to other economies and ecosystems, including those in Africa. We see Chinese investors interested in African markets, not only because of the opportunities on the continent, but perhaps in particular because of the value Chinese investors can bring as strategic investors, given the experiences at home. Here's Laura Lee, the VP of Investments at FutureHub. FutureHub is an early stage investor, which is backed by Transition Holdings. Transition Holdings is a Chinese company which has, you know, done business in Africa continent about a decade. And our main business is around manufacturing and selling firms. It's worth discussing right off the bat the role of Transgen on the continent. Transgen, of course, is the parent company to Techno, Itel, and Infinix. And collectively, Transgen is the largest smartphone manufacturer by sales in Africa. We completed a spin-off from our parent company since last September. We are operating independently. Now, despite the independence, a relationship with Transgen can be incredibly impactful on the continent especially from a distribution perspective. For example, the most popular music streaming app on the continent by number of downloads is Boomplay Music, which is owned by Transnet Group, a joint venture between Transgen and another Chinese technology company, NetEase. What made Boomplay the number one music streaming app is that the app comes pre-downloaded on all Transgen devices. Their logic is that they build up the infrastructure. And I think on top of the infrastructure, they want to bring more and more players to play in this ecosystem. This then introduces one part of the role Future Hub wishes to play in the African ecosystem. You know, one cannot build up everything by itself. That's why our Future Hub, we want to do this thing together with Trench Holdings. We want to incubate and find great startups. And then we use all kinds of resources together with transients or maybe resources from other Chinese investors or Asian investors or maybe Chinese partners to grow with the startups. Then, beyond the strategic resources from Transgen and other partners, the opportunity is in introducing other models and strategies that could work on the continent. Because again, in FutureHub's view, some of the unique lessons from China may be applicable for those operating in African markets. Here's Vincent Lee, the CEO of FutureHub. We did some sharings in Nigeria and Kenya. We introduced Chinese experts in technology from Shenzhen to the local ecosystem. They are very curious about how Chinese engineers do the development work. You know, in Africa, most of the country don't have that kind of very stable network and also limited bandwidth. That also happened in China once. 
So Chinese engineers have a lot of experience in how to improve and how to squeeze the capacity of the server of the database with a very low cost. I think that is also very important knowledge and experience to the early stage startup in Africa, really help them to save money and improve efficiency. As I talked to both Vincent and Laura about the Chinese market, a theme started to emerge. That China, as Stephen argued earlier, has gotten seemingly so advanced because of the nature of the infrastructure that they had to build during their development, and in particular, to build for an environment that is unique in its own right. It's a function of not just development, but of the nature of the consumers, many of whom are rural and who, not too long ago, were disconnected or underserved like many Africans are today. I would say China is still a developing country, and some kind of knowledge and experience might be useful to refer for African business, especially the second-tier cities and the third-tier cities in China. They used to have the same pain points as that of African market. In China, 90% of population has never been on the airplane. So from that point, you can see how diverse the market is. To Vincent's last point, Chinese tech companies have succeeded in building solutions for the diversity of consumers in the country. Everyone thinks Chinese market is really awesome because, you know, we share the similar culture and context. But I think it's some kind of different in Chinese market, like the user behavior and the buying power in uh, top one cities are totally different to top two or maybe top three, top four, top five cities. So I think maybe in African continent, we could share the experiencing from top three to top five cities in Chinese market. We can see in a sector like e-commerce how recognizing that the Chinese market is not entirely homogenous allows for new opportunities to be captured. Here, we'll talk about Pinduoduo again, the social commerce company targeting rural and smaller cities, which has seen astounding growth since their founding just five years ago. The Chinese e-commerce space was pretty saturated, with Alibaba's Taobao and Jingdong, also known as JD.com, leading the pack. But these companies employed the traditional Amazon style of e-commerce. And for Pinduoduo, in building a product targeting the mass market that doesn't necessarily trust traditional e-commerce, they've now risen to stand on equal footing with their predecessors. Everyone thinks Jingdong or maybe Taobao, they have done big success. And no other player could, you know, gain some success or make such a great progress in e-commerce market. But Pinduoduo has done that. And perhaps a model like Pinduoduo which employs group purchasing and referrals to build trust and keep prices low, has merits for African markets. I think it do have some kind of similarity compared to African continent because, you know, in top three or maybe top five cities in China, we are more trusting the communities around us. So we don't have the behavior to search something online. For one thing, group buy can lower the cost. And for another thing, social referral and social commerce can just cut the middleman. In most of the countries in Africa, you know, the distribution of goods from the big cities like Lagos to the second tier city or even villages is through middlemen. But there's a new way of selling or distribute goods through the social network, you know, housewives and the very small micro shop owners. They can just bear the responsibility to distribute the goods, which is also reducing the cost. And Future Hub believes that, on the manufacturing and supply side, this is where African relationships with Chinese businesses can be beneficial too. One of the advantage from China is that we have a very sophisticated supply chain. We have very mature manufacturing lines and so that we can really deliver 
good quality products with very low cost. And that is another advantage if you can connect Chinese suppliers to the entrepreneurs in Africa who is doing social commerce and other different forms of commerce. So that even they set the price very low, they can still make some margin. Another area for exploration is social media. While there are questions about data costs and utilization and smartphone penetration, particularly in rural and peri-urban areas, Vincent and FutureHub see that as an opportunity to fund or incubate startups that may better serve these consumers than traditional and currently available social media. We're really focusing on different opportunities in social networking or social media. In Nigeria, for example, the Facebook user is, is like 10% of the population, if I remember well. So there's a still a lot of spaces in that field. With that being said, beyond the digital realm, Chinese investors understand the role that offline plays in these kinds of markets as well. I remember that in the time of 2014, uh, 2015, there's a lot of different kind of marketing activities on the ground. You know, the agents and the promoters, they, they just go on the ground and go to the villages and go to the cities to acquire users, which is very similar to situation in some African markets. You know, the online advertising might not be the first choice. And in having that knowledge and understanding from China's development, Transgen over the years has built a robust offline network of stores and service centers, which may create additional offline and physical retail opportunities. We have mentioned about online resource, especially online traffic. But there's other things to mention is that Transgen also has very strong and profound offline resource in the whole continent. Transgen has more than 2,000 customer service centers and also thousands of retailer stores. So we try to incubate retail or maybe the new form of retail business in order to leverage those kind of offline resources. So what's made China successful, in my view, has been their ability to build products that are fit for purpose and in recognizing the different models required to service a big city customer versus a rural customer. So too do Chinese investors like FutureHub recognize that success in Africa will require solutions, even if inspired by China, that are uniquely African. In the end, there's a lot of pivoting and different kind of improving in the process. So finally, it, it is kind of a mixture of Chinese knowledge and also knowledge from the ground. Let's explore a case study of one company doing exactly that. My name is Sophia Zab, and I'm the global head of commercial and marketing at Pompeii. Pompeii is a fintech company operating in Nigeria and Ghana, whose investor and strategic partner is the aforementioned Transgen Holdings, the parent company to smartphone brands Techno, Itel, and Infinex. We are a smartphone-first digital financial services company. And at its most basic level, Pompeii is a payments app. You can use your Pompeii wallet to hold money, to send money to other Pompeii users or financial institutions and make payments such as buying airtime and paying for bills and other services. And in addition to the app, we're also building out a payments ecosystem of partners and enabling different use cases, including creating an agent network and online and offline merchant networks. For the purposes of our conversation about China, we can't talk about Pompeii without talking about its strategic relationship to Transgen. So Transgen is the lead investor into Pompeii. 
And in addition to the financial resources, they are strategic investors. So we benefit from having a close partnership with them. And that's on several levels, pre-installs being one of them. Pompeii has a major advantage in distribution, with the app coming pre-installed on transient devices. Distribution, in my opinion, is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle. On the most basic level, for every phone that comes pre-installed with Pompeii, we're saving the cost of paying for that install. It's far cheaper for us to run ads that get to people that already have the app to ask them to open it. And for running awareness campaigns, we're really shortening the funnel because people can go straight from seeing that billboard to seeing the app on the phone. And don't forget that transient devices represent over 50% of the smartphones being used in Africa. So us being pre-installed at that scale is quite significant. But the strategic relationship goes beyond pre-installs. In the payment space, convenience is really king. And we're actually working with Trenchant to bake Pompey into the core user experience of every Techno Infinix and ITO handset. So you could say that we're working towards powering an Apple Pay-like experience for them. And beyond that, we're also working on ideas like integrating into the keyboard so that people can text each other money using Pompey from any app, and then also building the Pompey QR reader into their camera. The transient relationship is beneficial from an offline perspective, too. We're very fortunate that this is another area that the Transient partnership can help us with. Transient has a really large distribution and network of retail points across Africa, over 200,000. And we can leverage those as we build out our own agent and merchant networks. They're making 5,000 retail points available to us in Nigeria to start with. And beyond a product perspective, the strategic relationship is proving valuable from a Chinese insights and advisory perspective as well. Obviously, our investors are Chinese. We also have team members that are Chinese. And I think that there are similarities between the history of the Chinese experience and where we are now in Africa. Currently, 15 years ago, the GDP per capita in China was what it is in Nigeria today. And obviously, since then, they've seen an enormous growth in smartphone adoption and also the fintech industry. And perhaps the biggest advantage, as Stephen mentioned earlier, is the experience moving from underdeveloped and underserved to one of the most advanced fintech markets globally. So I think the biggest thing that my colleagues from China bring to the table is the confidence that it can be done. They've seen China go from zero to being the fintech capital of the world today. And I think in China, unlike in the West, they've had to face similar challenges to make that growth happen. For example, many people were new to technology. Some of them needed a lot of education. And having to build that business in an environment where the majority didn't have a lot of purchasing power. So being able to draw on the experience and on the ideas of my Chinese colleagues that have watched this happen is great. There are even some examples of lessons and strategies from Chinese fintech companies that have been adopted by Pompeii and adapted to the African markets in which they are operating. There's a growth hack that Alipay used to use to get hundreds of millions of users within the matter of weeks. And it's based on a tradition of gifting money to people close to you that's inside a red envelope on Chinese New Year and other festive occasions. And Alipay released a digital version of that and it really spread like wildfire. So we use that as an inspiration to create similar ideas and uh, localize them for the context in Nigeria. So we've got two features in Nigeria called Lucky Money and the other one is called A Wolf Money. And they gamify that P2P transfer experience and reward users for using P2P transfers. 
But as we've said earlier, it's about inspiration from markets like China and contextualized to African markets. And those lessons go in both directions. We do learn a lot from the Chinese experience, but I think it's also vice versa. The African and UK team members share ideas that are new to our Chinese colleagues as well, and we adapt those also. As always, my BMIC Shio Folowio and I sat down to reflect on this topic, and in particular to discuss what we believe are specific opportunities in African markets around e-commerce, social media, and payments. Take a listen. I don't think the point of this conversation is necessarily about the applicability of social commerce versus the applicability of or a mindset or approach to building technology products that is fit for purpose. I think that's kind of the thread of the conversation. Social commerce is just a good example. I think it's a good example because firstly, it's already happening in droves and droves and droves on the continent. It's just informal and people don't see it, but the amount of you know, inverted commerce, social commerce that happens essentially through private networks is phenomenal. And it's specific to, I think, these kind of emerging markets where there's less of a institutional backbone from a trust perspective, from an infrastructure perspective, and people just kind of make things work in their own communities and with their own networks. And I think that therein lies the question or the opportunity and like the requisite set of conditions and the foundation that needs to be built in order to formalize it even better. I think it would be disingenuous to say that anyone can build what's being built in China, just given the sort of ubiquity of WeChat. And there's, you know, like ideological and political considerations that go into this conversation. I think an interesting question is, what's your feeling? What's your bet on, I guess, near future of messaging platforms like WhatsApp and some of the things that the MNOs are putting together? Because I mean, everyone wants it, right? When are we going to have an equivalent of WeChat and the kind of super app messaging platform where all your payments, transactions bills, et cetera, et cetera, being paid through the same platform. I just want to hear your thoughts on when that happens, because it might not be as, as far away as we're saying, just because we don't have WeChat, like we have all the building blocks, right? On one hand, I think it's going to be led by Facebook and WhatsApp, just given existing consumer behavior. But then on the other hand, and this is, I think, a big takeaway or a lesson for me from China as well, is like, you can build messaging and social media. And so like Pinduoduo has a very big social element to it. And I know that there's WeChat integrations, but if you build sort of like a niche messaging community thing that is more commercially minded than WhatsApp is at the moment, you know, I think you can still build a valuable business and you bake all of these pieces in together. Maybe, maybe. I suspect that those kind of WeChat integrations are a big initial scale builder. And so I kind of feel like you need those. And then maybe if you carve out that niche after having built it up, it becomes easier to do it. I wonder how hard it is to do bottom up in that way. I think, though, you can still leverage WhatsApp in a great way as like a top of funnel, you know, distribution mechanism. It's just not going to be as fully integrated yet. But how much of that is a problem? Like, these markets, there's a lot of frictionful experiences anyway. So it's not necessarily about having a fully integrated payments and chat 
and distribution all in one, yet it's just about the evolution of getting there, right? It's about moving, moving in that direction. Then I think that there's a separate question that we ought to talk about in the context of China and the conversations that I had this episode. Also, just on the role of Transgen, Transgen has all the hardware. I think any conversation in particular about like the relationship between countries is incomplete without talking about perhaps how well positioned they are to do whatever they want, to be honest. Yeah, of course, that's a hell of a position to be in. We're seeing what's happening with Apple, Epic Games, and like, can you own the thing that's in everyone's hands? It's a shit ton of leverage. I thought the social media thing was interesting just from a, not even from a commerce perspective. There is an overlap somewhere between how people are using social media now and the general culture of a lot of countries on the continent. Leveraging that, I think, is interesting. And certainly in terms of usage, in terms of engagement, in terms of all this kind of stuff, I think that underpenetration on the continent is interesting. I think it would ordinarily be predicated on the ability for brands to find a way to make money. But just from a pure usage perspective, there's a lot of space to grow. I don't know what that means anyone should build. I just think it's worth discussing. I actually think in that respect, it is contingent upon this perpetually underlying theme about consumer spend and market size and all of these things that we've talked about before. So your view is that the social without the commerce is not interesting? No, it, it is interesting. It's still the same conversation about the value of a consumer. Whether you're selling directly to them or whether you're selling ads, it's the same thing, in my opinion. And then your view is that because the commerce part is kind of already happening informally and it speaks to maybe a lower order need that you'd be saying focus on building the infrastructure for commerce for the kind of social penetration you already have versus hey get to 100% penetration i think if we have to sort of go through a checklist of what are the barriers to e-commerce right a big one is trust and what attracts me to social commerce in this context, especially like a group buying model, is that community element to it has part of it is that there's a trust element built into it. So the trust element is a growth mechanism and a feedback loop from a community perspective, but then it also is overcoming a challenge that is unique to a certain segment of the Chinese population. And that challenge is also the same challenge that we have from an e-commerce perspective with a large percent of the African population in the markets that we're discussing. It invariably otherwise would allow me as a brand to leverage like the trust building mechanisms that are baked in to overcome one of the most important barriers to e-commerce penetration at the moment. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And they're definitely not mutually exclusive anyway. And one reinforces the other, right? Like as trust increases and as people utilize, you know, e-commerce more, then it invariably increases the opportunity for an ad-driven model. Yeah. I just wish there was a way to monetize fun, <laughs> a better way to monetize fun. Like on the social side, I think there's, there's the like functional stuff and then there's just like fun and look I, d I don't even think that in america and all those places they've worked out how to monetize fun so you know there's an interesting point in podcasting for example 
it's very difficult to monetize a podcast directly to monetize your audience in the US. But in China, they have podcast platforms that allow for like tipping and micropayments and all of these different commercial elements. And you can actually monetize more readily. And one of the reasons why is because of mobile money. And so it makes micropayments more feasible. Does that mean, given the penetration of mobile money on the continent, that Africa is also more well-positioned to do things like micropayments? There's a separate conversation about sort of the consumer behavior of paying for things <laughs> or paying for content or paying for entertainment. But yeah, perhaps just the nature of the sort of way in which people pay each other is an opportunity here. That's a whole interesting piece. We should definitely talk about that. So I think the cool thing that we've kind of got to or explained or explored here a little bit is like mobile phones penetration equals higher social engagement, but with this like added element of being on a rail of the internet, which then means you can add stuff on that makes it way more efficient than the things that they were doing already. But what it also equals is like just high social engagement, which can be monetized in its own ways. That's not this like uh, straight e-commerce thing, right? There's other ways of, well, there's other things that people are doing on social that aren't functional and about getting something. How do you monetize those things? And I think that's an interesting piece to explore. Perhaps that's also the thing about something like social commerce is that, you know, if you're a content creator... You could sell products directly. You could more readily monetize through some of the you know, micropayments or some of the ways that we just talked about. And so there's really an abundance of opportunity that I suspect is to a large extent a function also just of payments, you know? For sure. Like all the stuff you're saying, I think is like super interesting. It's part of this conversation, but I also think there's like a, I think there's a whole other piece around, maybe we call it social commercialization that is super interesting from the fun side of just like sharing, engaging interaction between people. And that's where hopefully, you know, mobile, mobile money will play an outsized role in the future. I certainly think so. Yep. Maybe that's the crux is like, if anyone wants to be like China, the fact that African markets have mobile money perhaps enables them to be more like China than anyone else. Yep. I think that's fair. That's it for this week's episode of The Flip. Next week, we deep dive into mobile money and the role of players like mobile network operators. Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get that and all future episodes straight to your phone. You can also join our newsletter on our website, theflip.africa, for updates straight to your inbox. And follow us on social media at The Flip Africa for additional insights from our contributors and experts from around the continent. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week.